This is Halloween. This is Halloween. 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 This is Halloween. All right. <laughs> it's time for another Get Geekish podcast. If you made it through that horrible singing right there in the very beginning. Hey, it was lackluster at worst. <laughs> <laughs> it's spooky. Uh, yes, but uh, Derek over there, I'm Bino, and as he said, it's Get Geekish Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again here, and thanks to AIM Student Radio for replaying the show every week. Always fun to be out and about there in the, the real world, the airwaves. Uh, but we were talking about the nightmare before Christmas. It, it is that time of season. Halloween's almost here. Christmas is almost here. And it's one of those few uh, holiday crossing phenomenons. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's very few things that can be popular over two holidays, let alone two holidays as... Polar opposites? Yeah, as Halloween and Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll let you roll into what we're, what we're going to roll in with a, with a thinking today for the, the podcast. Well, one of the, like you were saying, one of the crossover films is Nightmare Before Christmas, right? It's in the title. <laughs> so when this movie came out in 93? 93. Mm-hmm. 93, yeah. Um... I remember actually getting it on VHS for, I think, my birthday or Christmas, like the next year, I think. I don't remember it actually being in the theater. I don't think, I don't, no, we didn't see it in the theater. I had no, I didn't know anything about it until I was given that VHS and VHS in that clam case. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is a Disney movie. Popping that sucker in, watching it, and being weirded out, yet oddly intrigued, but my parents hated it. <laughs> so... Yeah. I was I was similar. I remember I actually did see it in the theater. I still remember the theater in good old Longmont, Colorado, walking in there with my parents and my sister, and walking out and them not being happy about it at all. And me and my sister both thought it was amazing. <laughs> but we saw it in the theater, and coincidentally, we've we've touched on this in the past before too. This is one of the things is it came out in the theater, and then the VHS didn't come out. Yes, it was only on VHS. Didn't come out until almost a year later because this came out mm-hmm. in October of '93, and the VHS wasn't available until I want to say September or November of 1994, and then it wasn't on DVD until 1997. <laughs> and those were the big bucks in '97. Yeah, they wanted a DVD. But this was coming on the fact that this movie came about in Disney owns it. It was a Disney movie, but they were a little worried it was going to be too scary for kids and they didn't want to take any ownership with it. So they kind of threw it on the movie schedule and then they had a big opening for, oh, what was the other movie that they came out with? Uh, The uh, Three Musketeers was their big push for the holiday season that year. Dude, I love that movie. Yeah, that's a good movie too, but they put out Nightmare on Christmas like two weeks before that movie. So I, I think domestically... Nightmare only made like $50 million, but it was getting huge rave reviews because it was the amount per screen that it was getting when it was opened was really, really big, but they just didn't have it on very many screens, so they kept putting on more screens, but then the Christmas movie flush kind of flushed it down and it didn't go very far, but then it just garnered this cult-like following that got bigger and bigger and bigger over the years, and now you can't go anywhere without seeing Jack and Sally on things. It's like Hot Topic's main selling point for yeah, that hot, anime. <laughs> well, Hot Topic, Coles, Wal, Wal, I'm pretty sure Walgreens has an entire aisle dedicated to Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, I got a, I got a Nightmare Before Christmas dog toy from there for my dog. So, <laughs> Well, and it's funny, too, because my wife and I were talking about this. When we were watching it last night, and she was like, did you like this movie as a kid? I was like, well, I think so. I, I mean, I remember watching it and being kind of like, 
indifferent about it and then watching it again and liking it more and more. And she said that she, you know, she grew up in Scotland in a little village, as she put it. She got, she was gifted this VHS. She watched it. And then being the weird kid in the village just made her even weirder because she came obsessed with it immediately. And it is a fantastic movie, especially like it has so much rewatchability to it where you can watch it every year. You know the soundtrack. I'm You and I both own the soundtrack. Numerous versions like, of it. Yeah, I was going to say, there's there's tons of different versions of it. So well, If you think back to the VHS days, one of the reasons this was so great to look back because there's so many details because it was stop motion. There was a, a chance to do so many details in the background. Every little piece and part can be a little uh, different looking. But mm-hmm. most movies, if you know anything about film... It's it's motion, so if you freeze things, pause things, they're blurry. But this was shot one frame at a time, so even on a VHS tape, you could almost crystal clear freeze almost any scene on the tape, which is things we did with VHS tapes, you know, <laughs> and scrambled cable channels. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean that's the thing is like claymation was kind of not popular. I mean, so around that time. You had Gumby, which was a little bit before that. Mm-hmm. Um, Look at the California Raisins. Yeah, I was going to say the California Raisins. You had 93. I'm trying to remember when Clay Fighters came out. That might have came out after this, but that was a video game kind of using stop motion, clay fighting stuff. Skull Monkeys was definitely after this. So like, there was kind of a claymation renaissance because of this movie, mm-hmm. I want to say, because James and the Giant Peach came out after this. Which is another beloved movie. But I, th- I think this made it the 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 nail in the coffin that claymation style animation was had a, had a had a niche that people liked. It's true. Because anyone that's ever been anywhere near the set of a stop motion movie, I I don't think I could do it. I think I would probably beat something with a club before I could finish ten minutes of one of these movies. Well, I mean, 10 minutes is still not even a scene. That's like two seconds. Well, yeah, no, but that's that, probably that, like a that, second. Th- this so. movie, it's 24 frames per second. So they had to create unique motions for 110,000 frames. And it took three years to put the whole thing together. Can you imagine starting this in 19, well, probably 1989, and working so painstakingly on this? And if, you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to go take a coffee break, and you leave Jack out in the heated lamp too long, you melts. Well, and, and, and Jack alone, they had over 400 different heads for Jack mm-hmm. Skellington doing this animation. If you imagine being the one that has to keep track of all those and you know, what happens if you do smash one or drop one? Like, oh, oh crap, I dropped Angry Jack. Can he be sad in this scene? Uh, <laughs> um, you guys need a... He's smooshed. <laughs> I can't even imagine... like because. You and I, like, you know, people who paint the little figurines and everything like that, I'll do that and then I'll get bored real quick. So I can't even imagine doing three seconds worth of work, which is probably, what, six, seven hours mm-hmm. worth of worth of work just for that? I mean, that's kind of what got us into this was, you know, yes, this is a movie that when it was initially released was kind of like, eh, and then it just became a cult following. But we wanted to dive deeper into it for you. Oh, I found my, I found my exact numbers that I was reading about earlier. Yeah. Uh, when the picture went out, it was limited to like Disney had an agreement with studios that could only be on two screens per theater anywhere that was open. So it was averaged ninety five thousand dollars per screen. It was the second per screen average of all time behind Aladdin that went out the year after that. Um, so its initial 
uh, take at the box office was only $50 million. And then they re-released it in the theaters again in 2006 and 2007, which brought up its domestic total up to $75 million. Which for modern movies, $75 million of the box office is nothing. Mm. So for a movie that made that little at the box office to be this culturally significant, uh, bravo, bravo. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what we wanted to hit you with was the weird facts like that. Because again, I didn't see it in a the theater. I don't even remember marketing for it you know, in 93. Mm-hmm. So I remember getting it, uh, you know, my birthday was October. So right in that time frame when it came out on VHS. Um, but one thing is, is we know it's a Disney movie, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know that. They, they, mean, they, well, they released it under the Touchstone name that they owned yep. because they didn't want to be seen as a Disney movie until they could make money off of it. Right. And <laughs> it also came out as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is kind of, uh, uh, you know, misleading because, like, you know, his name goes above the title for serving as producer, creating the story, and coming up with the look and the characters for the movie, but his the actual directing and everything like that went to Henry Selick, who went on to do James and the Giant Peach and Coraline. Mm-hmm. Um, but they decided to use him because he was a bigger name thanks to the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, and Batman. So they're mm-hmm. like, hey, you want to do this? And he's like, well, I'm busy doing Batman Returns, but here's my buddy. You can just use my name. It's an interesting take on that, too, because I was reading an interview with uh, Henry Selleck, and when you t- read the interviews between him and Tim Burton, it doesn't seem like there's any animosity between the two. They both are super happy they got to be a part of it. Right. And Selleck's line was, I believe, it's kind of like Tim Burton laid the egg, and then I sat on it and hatched it. <laughs> Because this well, Nightmare was also based off a, a poem that Burton had written years ago. So I think he said that in, in his mind, from when the Nightmare Before Christmas first came into his head, it was almost 20 years before the movie came out, when all was said and done of you know creating it, coming up with a storyline, getting it to somebody else to film it. And on the actual filming of the movie, they said that Tim Burton was actually only on set maybe 8 to 10 days out of the three years. So it really was like he came with the idea and said, all right, you do it. You go to town. You make this happen. Here's my here's my baby. Well, and that's the thing, too, is like he, you said it was a poem. So he, he kind of got the little poem going um, while he was working as an animator for Disney on Fox and the Hound and the Black Cauldron. Um, he began toying with cartoon projects of his own, um, which – led him to Vincent, which is a great little short that's on the DVD extras. Um, but also the plot was kind of inspired by a reoccurring collision of holiday store decorations, which we're seeing more and more as we go on in years. You yeah. know, it used to be Halloween. Gonna... <laughs> go ahead. Go for it. I was going to say, when every person now complains about seeing Christmas decorations up before Halloween and all that kind of stuff, that is the exact same boat that Tim Burton was in, and that was mm. kind of the inspiration for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yep. <laughs> Which, you know, we have a huge thank for that. <laughs> That's like, I, I'm glad that he was so, so annoyed by that, yet enthralled that he decided to kind of do this. So uh, I really am happy that. But he also imagined it as a television special. Kind of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. 
Yeah, there, there's no there's no secret with that because the Christmas specials, I mean, everybody's seen those. There's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, there's Frosty the Snowman, there's Santa Claus has come down. That whole genre of ones where they're all stop-motion clay animation, mm-hmm. and we, I'm pretty sure almost all of us watched them over and over and over as kids. And they're still kind of nostalgic, but you show them to kids nowadays, and they watch and go, wow, that movie's lame, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but... Everybody had those in the mind, so the idea of he originally imagined the Nightmare Before Christmas being a TV special like one of those things. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in some of the animation for it, but he, he took it to a whole new level. And instead of these cute, cuddly creatures, the, the creatures in Nightmare Before Christmas are actually terrifying, but they're still somehow adorable. I mean, it's a clown that tears his face off, but it's still just a character that lives in Halloween Town. He's not scary. He's just creepy. <laughs> And they actually got a, a fight with Disney about that, too, uh, about Jack having eyeballs. If Disney had had their way, Jack Skellington would have had big, goofy, lovable that, eyeballs inside of his eye sockets. I'm really glad that uh, that they didn't, because that would have just been weird. Yeah. Had he actually had eyeballs, that kind of probably would kind of probably, that would have ruined the movie and not made it. Mm-hmm. That's great. And, and that if you're a- wondering what that looks like, just get some googly eyes, put it on your Jack Skellington. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to imagine looking at that for an hour and a half. <laughs> oh, man. I- and they, they, so they put their foot in the sand of the eyeballs, and Burton also put his foot down and uh, turned down. He got offered a boatload of money in, the I think it was the mid-2000s, or 2005, whatever, to make a CGI sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas. And he said, no, this was a story that's one and done, and it's the way it is. We're not going to water down anything about Nightmare and do anything like that. So, Well, like a sequel, I'm not going to lie. I'd like to see a sequel. I don't know what they would do with it, and you're right. It probably would ruin it, especially if they go CGI, because CGI is not going to be... If they did a sequel with somebody that was in love with the Nightmare of Christmas enough to do a full... Uh, claymation animation reboot and do a good story that Burton was okay with. I could be okay with that, but just making a sequel for sequel sake is not going to do this movie any favors Mm-mm. No. at all. I'm glad that he didn't go the whole money grab t- type of. <laughs> well, it's funny because by not doing that, they got so much more money out of it. Right. <laughs> well, it's so weird too, because like we, this became popular again. What? Like the early two thousands, right? Yeah, it was uh, re-released in theaters in 2006 and 2007, which was 10 years after the DVD came out. And then it's just been, it, it's it's become, the, I read another article about that of kind of why that happened. Of when it came out, it was such a, a unique take on thing that there were so many people, especially on the, the fringe groups of popularity in schools that really loved Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. And by the 2000s, a bunch of people that had been inspired and loved it growing up had established themselves in things like the music industry. Uh, AFI's Davey Havoc, My Chemical Romance's Gerard Way. Uh, they Emo music. Emo music, yeah. Blink-182's <laughs> Miss You. Yep. They have song lyrics that mention Nightmare Before Christmas in them. Um, they have a clothing line from Atticus, and it was full of clothes that look like the designs that could have been from Tim Burton films. They had the Nightmare Revisited soundtrack that came out that had Marilyn Manson and Korn and Rise Against and Evanescence and all these bands that had grew up with Nightmare Before Christmas being a part of their lives and 
kind of just rehashing it to everybody else. And now it's synonymous with not only Halloween, but Christmas for a lot of people is an annual tradition. Like it's, oh, yeah, we have to watch Nightmare Before Christmas. Heck, our kids just watched it again tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to say we watch it twice a year at least with mm-hmm. uh, Halloween and Christmas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, watching this film as a kid, I didn't really appreciate it, you know, because I didn't know what went in to the making of it. And as we talked, like the claymation is just painstakingly like every little minute detail. What do you think the hardest scene was to make? I mean, cause there's a lot of them. You look at that. You're like, how did they do that? I, I, I've, I've, I read the article you're talking about. So I can't, so I I know the answer to it. (laughs) And after reading it, I sat there thinking about it and because I, 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 I love being behind a camera and thinking about what it would take to make that specific scene makes my head hurt. So the scene in question, the most difficult shot was him opening a door. So when he's opening the door to Christmas Town, yeah, it's got the big gold reflective round handle that he's mm-hmm. reaching at. The dedication for the filmmakers to be as true to shooting like a live action as possible. Uh, this shot proved especially challenging. And when Jack discovers the part of the forest with the pathway to the other holiday worlds, by the way, that's why I would want a sequel is for him to go to like Thanksgiving or something like that and slap Chris, <laughs> you know, the pilgrims. Um, Bunny! He, looks long- <laughs> he looks longingly at the Christmas tree door. A close up of its shiny golden knob reflects his mournful skeleton as well as the trees behind him and it, as he advances to open it. Getting the reflection just right took a great deal of time, care, and attention. I'm sure at one point somebody on there was doing that, and you went, you know what, screw it. Do we really need this scene? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That's where I'd be beating things down. Like About halfway through taping that scene and we messed something up, there would be a two-by-four with a bunch of clay people smashed on it and me looking for another job. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, did you know that Jack Skellington actually appeared in some of Henry Selleck's other films? Yes, I did. I remember watching <laughs> James and the Giant Peach and seeing him and being like, hey. And he's also in Coraline. Just a tiny little bit. That one I'll have to rewatch. Yeah, if, if you look really close as the other mother makes breakfast, uh, you can see Jack's face hidden in the yolk of an egg when she cracks it and lays it down on the thing. So his little smiling face is there when she's making breakfast. Nice. And uh, even though Disney was scared of Nightmare Before Christmas, they did hide a couple of Mickeys in Nightmare Before Christmas as well. You know, I don't think I've ever seen them. I don't think I've ever. Yeah, if you if, if you look at it in the when all heck is breaking loose and the kids are opening presents on Christmas morning and they're all full of nightmarish things, there's a little boy and a little girl. They open up a package and this little cartoon monster with round ears comes out, oh, and that's yeah. basically a Tim Burton Mickey Mouse. Which is, oh, that's kind of a long shot, but that was his plan for it. And then if you look closer to the scene, the little girl's wearing pajamas with Mickey Mouse heads all over them, and her little brother's wearing pajamas with Donald Duck all over them. All right. So they squeezed that in there just, just in case. I was going to say, yeah, the, I know the little jack-of-the-box thing that has the Mickey Mouse. Or no, it's not a jack-of-the-box. It's a little flying doll. Mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine Vincent Price being Santa in that movie? That would have been great. I loved Vincent Price. And it was a really sad story about why he couldn't be in it, too. Mm-hmm. Um, go for it. Um, the, uh, I, I wish I could remember details better. <laughs> oh. But Vincent Price was on tap, and he had the whole character created for him. But then Vincent Price's wife died. Mm-hmm. And when it was time to start shooting the movie, he was trying to do the voice work for it. And the story goes that Vincent just sounded so depressed 
that he couldn't be Santa Claus because Santa was this holly jelly man. And they said it just sounded like hollow because Price was so distraught over the bad things going on in his life that they couldn't have me the voice actor for it, which is awful. Right. Because <laughs> that, that, for, for, for all you youngins out there, go look up some Vincent Price. Like, or just watch Edward Scissorhands because he, isn't he in that? That's true. He's the, the, the guy that makes Edward Scissorhands, the inventor guy. But I remember he used to read, what was it show? It was, it was almost like a masterpiece theater. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, he was the host. He'd go on and he was just, he had this super creepy vibe that he could do with everything. But it was so creepy, but you wanted to go like shake his hand. But like, oh, that was really cool, man. That was terrifying. He has a, he has a very distinct voice. Yes. Very distinct. Very distinct. Another thing that threw me off, too, is I remember getting the soundtrack, the, like the the actual motion picture soundtrack, right? Mm-hmm. You're listening to it, and it starts with narration, you know, where it tells the, the story, kind of a narrating, setting the, setting the groundwork for it. And it's a familiar voice. It's Sir Patrick Stewart. And I remember listening to that going, yeah. And for some reason, I had that Mandela effect where I just made it up that that was part of the movie. And then when I started watching the movie, I was like, where's the narration? <laughs> so he was actually supposed to be in the movie. Uh, he's called in to read poetry that was intended for the film's opening and closing narration. And the lengthy mono- monologues were eventually pared down to a few lines, and then they were reassigned to the film Santa. Uh so that's kind of disappointing, but at least they kept it on the soundtrack, which yeah, the fact that, that the they recorded it and it. still had it and shared it with us was great. This is one of the, the Nightmare Before Christmas, all the special editions and bonus features. Generally, I am not a big fan when they have, oh, you've got the director's cut where you can watch all the commentary and all these extra bonus features. Most of the time, I don't give two hoots about the Nightmare Before Christmas one. I could watch most of that bonus bonus footage on repeat over again. It's just fascinating going through. They show how the animation works, the different kind of stories, the actor things. It's it's yeah, it's like seeing behind the curtain. It's it's really good. <laughs> um, another actor fact, and I've shared this with you, and this is one of the ones that I think blew my young mind when I was a kid, and I found this out that Jack's talking voice and singing voice are not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, his talking voice is the six-fingered man, or no, sorry, Prince Humperdinck. No, six. Fi- which one? Anyway, one of the dudes from uh, from uh, Princess oh, Bride. Brain. Princess Bride. Thank you. <laughs> my brain just went all cattywampus there. Uh, um, I think it's Prince Humperdinck uh, from Princess uh, yeah, Bride. I'm pretty sure it's right. Is the is the talking voice for Jack? The singing voice is none other than Danny Elfman, who used to be the band. Oingo Boingo. That's where it's you. I forgot he was in Oingo Boingo. Oh my God. Oh man. The 80s pop band Oingo Boingo. So the singing voice and the talking voice, honestly, I they sound pretty close, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we know Danny Elfman scored the movie. He works with Tim Burton a lot. He does the Simpsons theme, that whole thing. So that's pretty cool. And then another one that blew my mind was the voice of Sally. And one of the trick-or-treaters was Catherine O'Hara, who is uh, Kevin's mom in Home Alone. Yeah. There, there's or, a lot of, like, everyone he'd worked with before when they did the casting call, almost all the voices come from projects that Burton had been a part of in the past. Mm-hmm. Or people, people are still going, Kevin's mom from Home Alone. If you watch Shit's Creek, she's the high-maintenance mom in that, 
show. So, oh, there it is. <laughs> she was the original Karen. <laughs> her, right. her her characters were. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. There's just uh, secret passages for the animators <laughs> so they could get to and from the set without it destroying stuff is pretty elaborate. Yeah, yeah they, they kind of stole that idea from uh, Lucasfilm, I think, when a lot of the Muppets and stuff for Star Wars where they realized they had to make the set and they had to find a way that they could get a piece because when you go back and watch it again, because I have a feeling if you've gotten this far into this podcast, you're probably going to go watch Nightmare Before Christmas again at least once or twice more this year. Mm-hmm. You can pause in some of those different scenes and realize that everything changes. A lot of cheap movies. We'll say some of those other Christmas specials, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You can watch the film and nothing moves except for like the main character or two or three characters at a time move. In Nightmare Over Christmas, every scene, everything's moving. Tree branches are waving in the background. Flags are waving in the side. Every character's facial expressions are changing and they're turning around because they changed everything for every shot they took. Like it was... Uh, Magnificent craftsmanship. Can you tell I'm excited about how much time they put into this movie? It's well, that's the thing. As a kid, you don't appreciate it, but now we're like, oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm glad you guys had the time and patience to do that. Because <laughs> I sure wouldn't have. Well, and uh, I, I know one thing that's still like I love this movie to you know to no fault, but <laughs> I, I I do wish that the final battle would have been a little bit more more <laughs> yeah the the ending was kind of just a like and it's it's done type of thing but i think that was them going we don't know how to end this without getting too our fingers are hurt so well they, they also could have got if they would have done things they could have made it go south really quick True. they could have had some murder things or somebody taken over a holiday like they could have gone too far really easily yeah and I could see that because it, it ends up being still just a very heartwarming when everything's done. You're like, oh, that was nice. And Well, yeah, it's the thing is like, it was just one of those ones where it's like, you know, Sally tries to be the hero. She does a good job, but then she gets captured because her leg falls off and he's like, oh, you're trying to make a dupe out of me. And then, you know, Jack comes in and then the whole battle is done within like two minutes where the only reason he wins is because the string wraps around the thing and unthreads Oogie Boogie. So you're like, okay, I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> At least the bugs were super creepy. Yeah. <laughs> My bugs! My bugs! <laughs> but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, maybe we're going to have to watch it again before uh, before Halloween. I, I mean, I, I know our kids will. <laughs> yeah, but we'll have to watch it again too. It's, it's, it's one of those ones, too, that you can put it in a room and you, you don't have to pay attention to it because we've seen it enough times. I can put it on while I'm making dinner, while I'm doing some other stuff, and it's just, it's it's such a, such a catchy, fun, creepy, weird movie. <laughs> making Christmas, making Christmas, la la la. Yep, it is. Plus, yep. the sandworm for Beetlejuice makes an appearance, so it eats the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, There's a lot of little hidden Easter eggs to other Tim Burton-esque stuff, so. Yeah. So do yourself a favor, go watch it again, and we will stop there because I'm sure we could just go off this for hours and let's let's just reenact the movie for you. No, I, know. That, I think that's one movie like on you know on Ready Player One where you have to quote a whole movie. This would probably be mine. Mm-hmm. I know it's definitely my wife's. So yeah, just but re- uh, <laughs> what yeah. do you guys think about Nightmare Before Christmas? What's what's uh, something? What's a reason you actually love it? Because obviously you know we love it. But uh, what what about it makes you 
turn it on every year at Christmas and or Halloween or any other time. <laughs> Let us know oh, at man. Get Geekish. And then uh, anything else you have to add before we uh, sign off for tonight? Mm, no, I'm good. All right. Well, All right. Hopefully you learned a little bit. And uh, happy almost oh. Halloween and happy almost Christmas. <laughs> and happy Claymation Animation watching. Woo! All right. Stop that. Stop that.